0: The views expressed on this program are not necessarily the views of this station. Content is for educational purposes only. Consult a financial advisor or conduct your own due diligence if investing. The show was pre-recorded earlier this week. The 2021 Top 100 Independent Advisory Firm Ranking issued by Barron's is qualitative and quantitative, including assets managed, revenue generated, regulatory record, staffing levels and diversity, technology spending, and succession planning. Firms elect to participate but do not pay to be included in the ranking. Investor experience and returns are not considered. The intersection of life and money. This is Everyday Wealth with award winning journalist Soledad O'Brien and personal finance expert Gene Chatsky. Presented by Edelman Financial Engines. Ranked by Barron's as the number one investment advisor in the country. Now, here are Gene Chatsky and Soledad O'Brien.
1: everyone I'm Jean Chatsky and I'm Soledad O'Brien.
2: welcome to everyday Wealth.
1: This show sits at the intersection of life and money, and what that means is that every week we will dig into what's happening in the news, what's happening in the world. We'll talk about the big events that we all face that could impact building and growing, preserving, and
2: protecting your hard-earned wealth. And, of course, we'll be guided by experts and experts from the Edelman Financial Engines who work with their clients every single day to help move their financial lives forward. So, we begin with a conversation with an economist because there's so much that's unfolding economically in the world that it actually is, uh, and moving so fast, it's confusing, a little overwhelming, and I think an explanation would be really helpful. I'm so excited about this, and I'm really excited to talk with
1: Larry Kotlikoff, who is professor of economics at Boston University. He has a brand new book out. It's called Money Magic, an Economist's
2: Secrets to More Money, Less Risk and a Better Life. I love it. I love this title so much. A Better Life. I'm buying it just for that. Exactly. (laughs) That is a
1: big promise, Larry. Welcome.
3: Great to be with both of you.
2: So
1: economists think differently than wealth planners, than a lot of different financial experts. So let's start with inflation, Larry. I mean, do you think that we're looking at temporary inflation? Do you believe it will be short-lived?
3: Uh, I really don't because, I mean, obviously, we've got supply chain issues. We've got fewer, you know, like restaurants, so the ones that are left uh, have more monopoly power so they can jack up the prices. So there's that aspect. But a lot of what we're seeing, I think, is the legacy of seven years of overspending by the government without kind of paying for it with taxes. So the country is fiscally broke, and countries that are fiscally broke long term they print money to pay their bills, and the Fed has been printing money out the wazoo. I mean, unbelievable six-fold increase in the in the amount of money it's it printed up to 2008, sixfold from then up till now. So what we're seeing in part is the economy kind of naturally reacting by saying, "Well, look, a lot of these people have this extra spending power. Their taxes aren't that high. They're going to spend more. Prices go up, and and you know what happens?" the real value of the government bonds the, the government owes a, a year's worth of gdp in nominal terms the government just made 7% of a year's of gdp by watering down the real value of its debt so there's kind of a fiscal tax associated with this inflation but the government is so broke going forward i mean this was like a drop you know a, a drop in the bucket compared to the long term problem so countries that are really broke they resort to money printing it's not going to be enough for the for our country, for sure, to to deal with all the imbalance, but it's the first thing that happens, and you you can get very sustained, long-term inflation from it until we get our fiscal house in order.
2: So then, those who've been those economists who've been predicting that inflation is going to level off and maybe go sort of start heading back down, you think those people have it completely wrong?
3: Completely, I do. Um, I think it's wishful thinking. Jerome Powell, the you know the Fed chairman's a fantastic person, trying his best, but you know, he's trying to drawbone the economy into uh, believing him, and and he's got he's gone a long way in that direction. He got got people to buy on the long-term bond returns are really low, but they're creeping up. You know, mortgage rates now are four percent; they were more like two and a half, I think, to around three. Uh, if you go back uh, six months, so people are getting the idea that this inflation, high inflation, could be here to stay. But I want to you know point out that. Fiscally speaking, it's not terrible news because we're watering down what has to be repaid to the government in in terms of in real terms.
1: So, Larry, we try to get really tactical and practical on this show. And and so I want to ask in terms of inflation, what should the game plan be if you're a saver, if you're a borrower but also if you're an investor. And before you answer the question, we got a, a question from one of our listeners that ties into what you were just talking about. And, and the listener said, if the escalating national debt and inflation are exacerbated even further to the point that the country fails for the first time to meet its debt payments, it defaults, what scenario would make purchases of government or business debt bonds attractive again?
3: One thing I'm trying to say is that the uh, by printing money and having inf- prices going up that actually reduces the fiscal pressure somewhat because we are in effect defaulting on the debt through its uh, purchasing power it's not formal default it's informal default so uh, what what should savers do they should stay miles away from long-term government bonds and even short-term government intermediate government bonds because if inflation continues interest rates are going to uh, certainly, you know, be much higher, and the Fed is also threatening to raise interest rates. So bond prices only have one place to go, which is down. On the other hand, if you're a borrower, uh, you like that, because if you have taken out a 4% mortgage or 3.5% mortgage, inflation takes off, you get to pay back and water down dollars. So, so if you're worried about inflation, which I think everybody should be, this would be a good time to try and get a low-rate uh, mortgage for 30 years, because it's a natural hedge against inflation in terms of what – you owe, yeah. Investors, savers—they uh, should just stay clear of investing in any long-term bonds, whether it's government bonds or corporate bonds, because of the risk of inflation. I think uh, it's unfortunate that we're kind of in a tough place where the stock market looks overvalued, uh, the, the bond market looks miles overvalued, Bitcoin is a uh, you know uh, uh, a crash landing waiting to happen. So why are housing prices higher? You know, if you think about. Why house price is going to higher? It's because you have something real, it's secure. It's going to be kind of inflation-proof. Your actual physical house is going to stay even with uh, the cost of construction, which is going to rise with inf- inflation. So it's a natural inflation hedge to have real property, whether it's land or you know, buildings or uh, jewelry or paintings.
1: So Larry, in your book, you suggest that we should actually own more stocks as we get very old rather than fewer in terms of our asset allocation. That seems contradictory to what, I guess, it's, we It's a notion up. I've never heard yeah. before.
2: So, so Larry, what's that all Explain about? Explain yourself, Larry. Explain yourself.
3: Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough, yeah. So this is like standard finance. It's not just uh, Larry's a crazy point of view. Uh, (laughs) Suppose you've got a $30,000 social security uh, stream of income coming in every year, you're 65, retired, just to make it simple, and you have a half a million in assets in a brokerage account. Let's forget retirement accounts, keep it simple. So now through time, you're going to be eating up uh, that $500,000 so. Maybe by the time you're 80, that $500,000 has dwindled down to $100,000. So now most of your resources are much safer in total than was the case earlier on. And as you keep going through time, you're using up those assets for different things. So you're becoming more like a bond, less like a stock. Inflation uh, indexed uh, Social Security is the safest thing out there. It protects you against longevity risk. So what economics says is you want to maintain a balance between risky high yield investment and safe. and as you get older and older you're getting more and more into safe securities because social security becomes a bigger and bigger part of your financial life. so you can take more risk in your financial and your dwindling financial portfolio. So this comes straight out of finance that you want to try and over your lifetime think about not just your stocks but uh, and your and not just your portfolio, not just your financial assets, but your non-financial assets as being part of your financial portfolio. So your labor earnings, your Social Security uh, and inheritance that might be coming in. How risky are these things? Let's try and get a, a balance through time between, you know, if you're trying to be like, you know, Thirty seventy. Uh, it's thirty seventy with respect to your entire resources. It's not thirty seventy with respect to your oh, uh, financial goodness. assets.
2: Okay, so then when you talk about more risky, what you're really saying is that because you, in some ways, as you get older, become less risky, that now exactly you can be more risky, and it ends up with that same balanced portfolio, which is what we often hear from wealth planners.
3: I'm giving you two both PhDs, awarding uh, them a
2: <laughs> Thank you. I accept. It's Thank now you. Dr. O'Brien. Brian, by the way.
1: <laughs> <laughs> and we will refer to you as Dr. O'Brien Appreciate for that. the rest of the show. We've got a pause for just a moment, but we'll be right back with economist Larry
0: Kotlikoff. More with award-winning journalist Soledad O'Brien and personal finance expert Gene Chatsky when we come back. Welcome back to Everyday Wealth with Soledad O'Brien and Gene Chatsky.
2: And we're back, everybody. I'm Soledad O'Brien, along with Gene Chatsky. Uh, We have been in a conversation talking about what the economy is going to look like. I think we're talking, Gene, far more than just the year ahead, clearly.
1: Clearly. We're talking about people's long-term futures. And, Larry, you brought up Social Security. And I know it's a topic that you have written about extensively, a best-selling book on the topic. Many, many people, probably most people, take Social Security at age 62. And yet we know they would be better off waiting Why do they do that? Is it just a matter of need or is there some lack of knowledge going on here that causes people to make a decision that doesn't benefit them in the long run?
3: Well, we're not sure exactly why this mistake is happening, but it's an enormous mistake. Uh, If you wait till 70 to take your Social Security benefit rather than 62, it's 76 percent higher adjusted for inflation. About 85 percent of uh, American workers should be waiting till 70 to take Social Security Only about 6% are. You've got to realize that Social Security is inflation-protective. Right now, we've got inflation roaring out of control. You want to have more inflation-protective resources going forward, and also you want a much bigger check. Now, why are people doing this? Well, it may be that they hit retirement age. They've had it. They say, well, I've lost my labor income. I didn't save enough. Therefore, let me uh, take the Social Security so I can keep my IRA money in the stock market, well, that's actually the reverse of what people should do because the stock market is extremely risky, even though it's done well in recent uh, decades, whereas if you're patient with Social Security, you earn this enormous positive real return by being patient. So they look at this uh, return on the stock market, uh, they don't look at the downside to it, they don't adjust for the risk, and then they make the wrong decision.
2: So, Larry, your new book, uh, as we mentioned earlier, is called Money, Magic, and Economist's Secrets to More Money, Less Risk, A Better Life. Big, big, big promises there. You have this list. There's a, a sample, a list of some of the, I guess they call them financial shockers, which I guess are maybe counterintuitive ways to think about your money. Some I agree with. So I wouldn't say that. I wasn't really shocked when I read them. These days, many people end up retired longer than they work, right? That's really that the healthcare care system uh, has uh, in the upside has really helped. Helped us uh, live longer, and actually, a big risk is that people will outlive the amount of money that they've saved. I think a lot of folks in their seventies and eighties, who are healthy, start getting very panicked about that. But there are some I disagree with.
1: The ones that interested me, and we're going to talk about life insurance a little bit later in the show. You, you have two financial shockers about life insurance: the more children you have, the less life insurance you likely need. And what's the families, philosophy behind that? Yeah, families are insurance companies that's another one. I, I just found these confusing.
3: So what you're trying to do is ensure your living standard for your, uh, if you die, that your survivors, your, your uh, spouse and the kids should, up to the point where the kids would otherwise leave the household, should have the same living standard. Nobody should have a deprivation there. That's how much uh, insurance you need. But uh, when you have an extra kid, the affordable living standard for everybody goes down. So in particular, if you die, you need to provide a lower living standard for your spouse because you've had to take a hit uh, because you've had to pay for this extra child. So actually, the life insurance needs for the remaining spouse, surviving spouse, go down. So this turns out, you know, we have a software company. We have a a tool called Maxify.com, M-A-X-I-F-I.com. We make these calculations. I wrote the book because I'm not, you know, I know that most people don't like to run software to figure out. So I just try to say, okay, what did I learn from running the software with clients? Uh, And one of the lessons is that, uh, not for everybody, but for a lot of people. The more children means less life insurance needs.
2: I'm so confused. And I, so, know. and I know you just gave me my PhD in economics and I appreciate that, but I literally feel like I have no idea what you're talking about. So it seems completely well, contradictory, right? More kids, more tuition, more food, more uh, helping them with graduate school. It seems like that would actually be hugely problematic than just, hey, we got one kid, the spouse has died, and now we can put our resources into that kid.
3: Well, you know? it depends. You know, if you are going to put the kid through expensive college, that might raise it, but it's it's just not like you need to uh, proportionally increase your life insurance. And in some cases, you can actually it's appropriate to lower it because the surviving spouse, if you've spent so much money, you know, let's say putting the kid through daycare and private school, maybe, and now the kid is uh, maybe off in college without having to pay tuition or whatever, gets some scholarships, and now the surviving spouse has been used to this lower living standard because you had had to put out so much money for these other things. Well, now you don't have as much to insure against, which is, you know, you need to pay for that surviving spouse to be able to have that same living standard, but it's a lower one. So this this is why
2: you frame everything as living standard, right? But also you've been used to a lower standard of living. So that's amazing news. You can march forward with this lower standard of living. And that's going to actually save you money in the long run, which is why it seems like you frame everything as living standards. So if you can lower your standard of living to an area where it's comfortable, that's actually a way of, I guess, from an economist point of view, saving money. I
1: think what we've learned yeah. from this segment is that there's a reason that economists and financial advisors are different people, yes. right? Because <laughs> economists are helping us adjust to this standard of living and financial planners are helping us strive for the standard of living that we really want. The book is Money Magic. Larry Kotlikoff, thanks so much.
3: Thank you both. I love uh, loved being with you.
1: It's good that we are also joined by experts from Edelman Financial Engines who work with clients, real people every day, to help move their financial lives forward. Today we've got Brian Leslie joining us from Omaha. Nice to have you here, Brian.
4: Thanks, Gene. Thanks, Soledad.
1: I was saying earlier in this segment that financial advisors and economists are very different creatures. So as you were listening to this conversation, Brian, What were you thinking?
4: I was thinking that I love the theory of economics. However, the majority of the theory of economics, it's predicated on the fact that you have rational buyers, rational sellers making rational decisions. And the problem is in my office, I've got human beings. (laughs) (laughs) And we as human beings do not make rational economic decisions. I mean, if I was trying to optimize for the economics, I can tell you, I would not have had three kids because that makes
2: no economic sense to have children. Zero. (laughs) The worst
4: economic decision I ever made. However, I would argue probably the best decision I've ever made. Right. And I think that's the thing is the framing of this is are we trying to solve for the economics for the bottom line or are we trying to solve for something else? Yeah. Happiness, maybe
2: personal Life. economies. Exactly. exactly. So he said something interesting that I'm not sure I fully understood about risk, because it seemed contradictory, right? This idea that as you get older, you should be taking on less risk. And then I I guess his point kind of came back to what you consistently say and, and what all the Edelman financial experts often will say to us, which is about making sure that you're diversified and that you're, you know, that you're thinking of risk That you're balanced in your portfolio.
4: Yeah, I think that's the key thing, right? So, But I I think we have to be very careful about siloing our lives, right? So when we talk about the risk in our portfolio, most people, the first thing that comes to their head is like, okay, well, what's in my investment account? And what Larry was saying is we can't just look at the silo of what's in our investment account. We have to consider all of our financial resources and our streams of income, whether that be our wages, whether that be Social Security. You know, I'm from Nebraska, right? So a lot of people have farm income. And so we have to look at the context of those specific income sources and their specific situation to figure out how do these other resources play into how they should allocate their investments.
1: One of the things that he was saying was – He was making the point that Social Security is an annuity, right? And an annuity is guaranteed income that you will have for the rest of your life. Less risky. Some people have other forms of income like that. They have pensions that they know that they can count on forever. You've got clients who have portfolios. When you look at the decisions that they're making about how much in stocks to keep in later life, do you ever find – yourself saying, yeah, it's okay to hold on to some more in stocks than you might have thought, particularly because we're living so much longer?
4: Well, yeah. I mean, I think if, if you just put this in, in context, you know, when you retire, whether that's 65 or 70, you probably have 25, 30, 35 years left that you have to draw on your investments. But if you're 95 years old, how long do you need to rely on it? You could make the argument that, yeah, you could actually afford to be more aggressive, and I think that's what he was doing. I think one of Larry's other points, though, was probably just as important, and that is delaying Social Security, right, because your Social Security does get that cost of living adjustment to it. So it it does have that built-in inflation hedge, and you really have to maximize that income source within the context of your overall portfolio.
1: You know, I'm just thinking we've been doing this show now for four weeks. We've talked about inflation every single week. Clearly, based on the amount of time that we're spending on it, a really important one. I know you've got a webinar coming up that dives into it a little more deeply.
4: Yeah, it's coming up a couple of days, January 25th, 3 p.m., 8 p.m. Eastern. Basically, just trying to provide some folks some things to think about when it comes to inflation and how they should position their portfolio. So it's free. The title is 10 Ways to Help Protect Your Wealth from Inflation. If listeners are interested... Just visit planEFE.com to register. It's free.
2: It's good timing, really, because I mean, you're right. We've been talking about inflation uh, for every single week that we've been doing this show. So we're in week number four. And woo, Larry is not optimistic about where inflation is going. That actually, that, that part of the conversation kind of scared me. But he is
1: optimistic about homeownership. And that's what we're going to be talking about when we come back. We've got a question from a listener, and it's right around the corner
0: with award-winning journalist Soledad O'Brien and personal finance expert Gene Chatsky when we come back. Welcome back to Everyday Wealth with Soledad O'Brien and Gene Chatsky.
2: We're back. I'm Soledad O'Brien along with Gene Chatsky and also Brian Leslie, an Edelman Financial Engines wealth planner. It's so nice to have you with us today, Brian. Thanks for joining us. We've been talking about everybody's personal economies, which was really a phrase that I had never heard before we started doing this program, um, really focused on sort of how your money is what you need to focus on versus all those things outside that you're hearing about or worried about in the environment, I guess, that don't necessarily impact what's going to happen with your life, your money, your job.
1: And it also has to do with what you can control right? I mean, you can't control interest rates. You can't control inflation. You can't control a lot of the things we were talking about with Larry in our last segment. You can control to at least some degree your savings rate, whether you ask your boss for a raise, other factors that can actually
2: make a meaningful difference in your day-to-day life. One of those big questions, of course, is should you be buying property or house right now? Hamlet said, to be or not to be, we say to buy or not to buy. <laughs> uh, because it is, it's a crazy time. Housing prices are. Absolutely insane. And they show no sign of slowing down. So our listener, David R. from Woodbridge, California, is considering purchasing a home. But he's concerned the prices might be too high. And he wants to know this. Should he move forward with plans to purchase a home or should he wait on the sidelines hoping that prices will fall? I guess he wants you to tell us, Brian, what's going to happen in the next 12 months, please. I'm
4: I'm shaking my eight ball right now to see what it says. I mean, I think this this same question applies to the stock market, because everybody's asking the same question right now about the stock market of, hey, I've got some cash. I know it's sitting in money markets or savings accounts making zero point nothing, but I don't want to invest it and then have the stock market go down tomorrow. And the same thing applies to this real estate question. While I I commend the effort of thinking like, hey, I'll just wait till the market dips. What if it doesn't dip? I mean, I think about the stock market from like 1991 to 1996, it, it doubled. It was up 100%. You know, a lot of people said, well, I don't want to buy now. And then from 1996 to 2000, it doubles again. And then all of a sudden, they throw their hands in mm-hmm. there hand, and they just say enough is enough and they end up getting in. And of course, what happens in 2000, the dot-com bubble burst. So this idea of like trying to time the, the market, whether that's real estate or whether it's stocks, it's impossible to do. You might get lucky. So I think to answer his question of, you know, should I wait for prices to fall? There's an old saying that from a guy named Walter Deemer when the time comes to buy, You won't want to. (laughs) And I think back to COVID during 2020, during the stock market lows, how many people do you think wanted to invest? They've been sitting on cash. They knew they should get an investment. They're like, well, I'll wait for the dip. And then all of a sudden the dip comes. The market's down 35% in in a month. How many people wanted to invest?
2: What are the rules of thumb that someone like David R. or any listener um, should be thinking about before they go in to buy a home? I always, I do a chart with all those things you listed, like, where do I want to live? What do I want the next 20 years to be like? Where do I want the kids to live near me, with me, close to me, being able to pop over whenever they want? And I have found like doing a big giant chart, which is really an essentially life quality, uh, has been actually kind of helpful when it comes to homes that I'm going to live in.
4: Well, that life quality is a huge point. You know, there's been this thing over the years where a lot of people have tried to get into homes. I remember when I graduated college, there was a lot of my friends that were just going out and buying homes at 2223 and while i agree financially getting into a home typically makes more sense than renting there's also some other things to consider mainly the economics like can you afford it right you know there's a study out there some of the statistics from the study homeowners typically have 20% less leisure time they spend 4 to 6% less time with friends <laughs> and 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 the last one's my favorite They weigh 12 pounds more than renters do.
1: Oh, if I'd known that. That's (laughs) so interesting. Do you think that's because renters are typically younger and they haven't hit that age at which they have kids? they have responsibilities, their metabolisms are changing, and yes, they're going to put on those five pounds around the middle, right? I mean, I I, I do think there's a lot of age bias in that research. Well, Well,
4: valid point, but I I think that also ties into the current real estate market that we're dealing with. And that is, I, I want to say it was 2019, where the U.S. Census Bureau announced that millennials had just overtaken baby boomers for the largest population demographic, which leads to, like, Guess what baby boomers do? When when you have kids, you don't want to live in that condo downtown anymore. You want to live out in the suburbs, closer to schools and things like that.
1: Well, and that's what we've been seeing drive up the prices during the pandemic. It's been millennials saying, OK, it is really time. And and we were talking last week that millennials, by the way, are not children anymore. Right. Millennials are, are 40 years old and they're You're waving your hand. You're,
2: you're you definitely a millennial. A, are you
4: 38 years oh, old. Oh, my God.
2: God. You're a grown person. <laughs> oh. The
4: gray hair hides it. <laughs>
2: You know, so they don't realize that they're going to be chunky, have no friends, and also uh, no free time to do anything because they clearly haven't read that study yet. But it's been interesting to see the number of people really moving to making that move into their first home.
4: I think it goes that like house rich, cash poor type of thing. I just don't like having especially younger folks tie so much of their resources up into a home.
1: I think that's a really interesting point, actually. I agree with you. People overbuy. Um, they, they spend more on a home than they probably should. I mean, my benchmark for housing has always been don't spend more than 35 percent of your take home. But that's not just your mortgage payment. That's the cost to live in that house. It's your property taxes. It's your insurance. It's your maintenance. It's your lawn care. Like, let's put it all in that bucket. I do think that we sometimes forget that when you're making mortgage payments, you are building a supplemental savings account. You're building this cash reserve that, you know, when people talk about throwing away rent, I I don't necessarily agree with that because owning a home comes with so many other financial obligations in order to keep it up. But that chunk of change that you get when you have paid off a mortgage or when you've built a lot of equity in your home can be really, really useful down the road.
2: Plus, Realtor.com says home sales are expected to grow, like just under 7%, um, which would be a 16-year high. And prices are expected to go up. So... David might be sitting on the sidelines only to discover, as where we live in Florida, if you were sitting on the sidelines saying, listen, I'm going to wait out this crazy rush to a warm state where you can be outside in the winter. I'm just going to wait and I'm going to be able to buy something you were priced out and the prices are still going up.
4: I remember buying my first house in 2010. And I remember at that time, they were telling me interest rates are going higher. And at the time, I think my first mortgage was three and a half percent. Today, it's two and a half. So some of those predictions haven't necessarily come true. Mm
2: -hmm. How do you run those numbers? How How do you think about a big graph in terms of, because again, back to personal economy, right? You have to sit there and say, here's what I have to spend. I mean, maybe you're buying a thing that you're then flipping to be an Airbnb. It seems like so many variations on what could economically work out for you.
4: Well, as you think about the numbers of buying the house, the obvious is like, hey, does this work in in my budget? And there's numbers out there of like, hey, your total debt payment shouldn't be more than 40% of your income. Uh, Housing shouldn't be more than 30% of that. Keep in mind, those industry standards are kind of set by banks, and banks are in the business of lending you money. So that's what they want to do. Now, that doesn't mean you should be spending that much on debt payments. And so When folks are shopping for a home, I always tell them to think about getting a home with a 15-year mortgage and look at what that payment is. There's calculators out there. But when it comes time to buy the house, put it on a 30-year mortgage. Mortgages are cheap
1: money, right? They have been cheap money. And when we, as Brian is saying, look at the alternatives, we're looking at where is our next dollar going to earn us more money. And look, I agree with you about looking at the 15-year schedule, but then taking the 30 to give yourself a little bit more flexibility, except when it comes to bumping up against retirement. I want out of my mortgage at retirement because retirement is an uncertain time. Even if you're thinking that you might work in retirement, that you might continue to earn in retirement, I just don't want the pressure. And I know a lot of people who, particularly women, feel a lot more secure knowing nobody can take this away from me. If I need to get money out of it, I can get money out of it.
2: So Brian, why do you support a long mortgage? Um, Because I think there are a lot of people today who would say, listen, don't take a mortgage at all. Go ahead, buy it outright, and then you don't have to worry about anything.
4: Two years ago during COVID, I refinanced my house. I got a 30 year on a two and a half percent mortgage. Well, over the last couple of years, I could have allocated money towards paying down the mortgage and essentially guaranteed myself a two and a half percent return, or I could have allocated it elsewhere. And for me, that was in retirement accounts and investments and things like that. And and the return on my capital has been greater by going that route than paying off the mortgage. So if you'd like to talk to a wealth planner to better understand how your mortgage factors into your overall financial plan, give us a call 833 plan EFE or visit planEFE.com.
1: And we'll be right back.
0: More with award-winning journalist Soledad O'Brien and personal finance expert Gene Chatsky when we come back. Welcome back to Everyday Wealth with Soledad O'Brien and Gene Chatsky.
1: And we're back. I'm Jean Chatsky here with Soledad O'Brien and Brian Leslie, a wealth planner with Edelman Financial Engines here from Omaha, Nebraska. Through January, we have been focused on resolutions on getting our financial house in order. Today, we're going to talk about life insurance. And again, I find that's one of those things that people just don't like to talk about. Because when you're talking about life insurance, you're Inevitably talking about death. So let's just set the context with a few numbers. 46% of households in the U.S., almost half, have no life insurance at all. And 44% would feel the financial impact within six months
2: if the primary wage earner would Pass away. And 100% of us are going to die at some (laughs) point. So, like, wrap your head around this topic, people. It's insane that half of Americans don't have life insurance. I actually understand. Some of that, because I think it's it's
1: complicated, and people think it's a lot more expensive than it is when we're talking about life insurance, there are different kinds of life insurance. there's term life insurance, which terminates it's just a death benefit, plain and simple. Then we get into permanent life insurance, and that's whole life insurance that lasts forever as long as you've made your premiums. It's universal life insurance. It's variable life insurance. There are are a lot of different permutations, but just bring it back to that term insurance for a second, because if what you're thinking about is how much life insurance do I need for my family? And we've got a really good article at hermoney.com that just lays this out in detail. So if you're looking for a roadmap to follow, just go there. But let me give you the highlights. It's really all about your family's needs. And when people need life insurance is when somebody else is depending on their income.
2: So if you're a single person who has a job, but no one's depending on your income, you would advise them, Brian, hey, listen, you probably at this moment in time don't need life insurance?
4: Yeah. I mean, very possibly. If there's nobody dependent upon that future stream of income, yeah, I don't see the need for it.
2: For some singles, they're
1: caring for an older parent. Right. Then you need it. For some singles, they're running a business. And then they need to look into a business policy, key man insurance, so that that business could continue to function if something were to happen to them. But for most singles, the answer is no. Now, don't get me started on disability insurance, which singles need more than anybody else. But typically, you want to look at purchasing a policy that's five to ten times your annual income. And that's a rule of thumb. I don't love rule of thumbs. I wish everybody would just run a life insurance calculator that takes you through how much your dependents would need to spend in order to keep up with their cost of living. Is that the calculation?
2: Is it cost of living? And, hey, I expect to send these kids off to college. And, hey... Actually, we have to keep maintaining the mortgage on this exactly. house. That's the math that you do around it.
1: Yeah, that that is exactly the math. And that's what a good life insurance calculator will do. And the goal with term insurance is to get you to that point where you can drop it, right? It's to build enough of a cushion of wealth off to the side, enough of a stockpile that If something were to happen to you, your dependence would be just fine.
4: Well, I mean, to your earlier point, I mean, if cost is a big concern, like term insurance is the way to go. It's typically the cheapest form of insurance. And for many people that need the most life insurance, because remember, we're talking about we need to replace the stream of income. So when you think about younger people, most likely their biggest asset is their future earning stream. Right. right. And that's what we need to essentially replace with the life insurance. And so come back to the term insurance. That's where we're going to get most bang for our buck.
1: And if you're confused, if people sometimes people are just confused. Do I need life insurance? Do I just substitute the word life with income. Do I need income insurance? And all of a sudden, the picture becomes really clear.
2: Except that sometimes we don't insure the lives of people who would be hard to replace. For example, my dad had life insurance, but my mom didn't early on, right? Because she wasn't working when she had small children. But if you actually had to get a driver, helper with the kids' homework, like that's actually a job. It just doesn't have an income associated with it. And I really think about what's it going to cost to replace this person's gig that they're doing in the house?
4: I am them. I I am them, right? So, I mean, that's the same situation in my household. I work, but my wife stays at home. We got three kids under the age of five. Do you think I can do that? No chance. I remember when we had our middle child, she unfortunately had to spend a couple of days in the NICU, So that meant I was at home trying to take care of the the oldest. And that was the first time that I had ever given my son a bath. And there were tears (laughs) by all of us. So to your point, like just because she doesn't necessarily have an income, if she dies, I need income to replace what she provides to the household.
1: So, Brian, how do you know if you have enough
4: coverage? Well, there's some easy rules of thumb. So one of them is to just cut it in half and drop a zero.
1: What do you cut what in half and drop a zero? So
4: as you think about the insurance, there's something called a death benefit. That's the payout that your beneficiaries get if you do indeed pass. Well, let's say it's a million dollar policy. So if you die, it pays out a million dollars to your beneficiaries. Well, cut it in half, you got five hundred thousand, drop a zero, you got fifty thousand. That gives you a broad idea as far as how much income your beneficiaries would be able to generate From that lump sum year, Yeah, every
2: year. So $50,000, everyone needs to be able to mostly live on because that's what they're going to get if you die.
4: Well, that's it. And so you look at that number, you say, well, hey, is this going to be enough for you to continue to maintain your lifestyle and meet those future obligations such as college for the kids? Is that going to be enough? And if it's not, we got to go back to the drawing board and figure out, hey, where do we get and how do we get some additional coverage?
2: What's the best way to think about insurance? I mean, truly, there are those late night TV ads for, you know, dial one 800 and it only costs this. Or is that just avoid those like the plague? Can you come to a wealth planner to talk about where to go next? How do you what's the best way to do it? The first
4: question is, do I need it? And then once you decide if you need it, you got to figure out how much. And then once you figure out how much, then you have to go out and get some. One of the things that we typically recommend with our clients is to go out and contact an independent broker. And this is a little bit different than what's called a captive agent. So a captive agent, you know, not to throw any specific insurance companies under the bus, but they sell their insurance and their insurance only. If there's a better policy out there that's offered by a different insurance company, they may not tell you that because they don't sell those policies. And that's where an independent broker can add some value. Who really needs
1: permanent life insurance?
4: You know, as you think about the needs for permanent life insurance, it would be For those people where we don't know when they're expected to have enough, I mean, you use like key person insurance or business insurance. Like in a lot of those cases, you might have to use a a cash value or a permanent life insurance policy because you need that coverage there indefinitely. But for a lot of folks, we're simply just trying to buy us time to build up enough in resources that if we were to pass away, the family would have enough in resources to replace our income.
1: This is why you want to be talking to somebody who sells a lot of different policies from a lot of different companies, an independent agent, like you said. And it's not just true in life insurance. It's true in long-term care insurance. It's true in disability insurance. They know who has underwriting standards that will allow you through the door. And particularly as you get older, a lot of people get denied just for a variety of reasons. You know, I do think figuring out how much you need is just one of those things that should send people to an advisor so that they can get a good number.
4: That's exactly it, Gene. I don't sell insurance. We simply just come at it from an education point of view of trying to help our clients figure out what they need, what types of insurance they should consider, the pros and cons, We're just coming at it from an objective point of view.
2: And certainly, I mean, even just starting the conversation, since there's such a tremendous number of people who just are not insured at all to start that. I I think these are the kind of conversations for people who are reluctant or full on unwilling where you need to broach it and then circle back around to it. And then third or fourth time, it's like, remember, we had this conversation. (laughs) Let's execute and let's get it done. Brian, thanks so much for being with us today. We certainly appreciate it. And it's been great to get your insight on all these topics. So much information uh, that's accessible to everybody.
1: If somebody wants to reach out to you or to one of your colleagues, what do
4: they do? Yeah, you bet. If you need help figuring out how much insurance or what type of policies you might want to consider, give us a call. 833-PLAN-EFE or planefe.com. We
1: took some questions from folks during the show today. We love those questions. Soledad is nodding right along (laughs) with me. We like your questions. So keep sending them. Visit our website, everydaywealth.com. Let us know what's on your mind and let us know what you need answers
2: to. And if you missed last week's show, the podcast is available there as well at everydaywealth.com. Big thank you to our guests today, uh, certainly uh, Brian with us today and also Larry joining us as well. Have a great week, everybody. We'll see you back here next week next week
0: everyday wealth with soledad o'brien and gene chatsky is sponsored by edelman financial engines tune in each week to hear fresh and compelling insights and strategies to help you elevate your financial potential to learn more visit our website everydaywealth.com and find our show wherever you listen to your favorite podcast